Good morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we need you. I need you. Every high thing in our life, Lord, let it come down. And by your spirit, Lord, just teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. On March 17th of this year, Christine Emba wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post titled, Consent is Not Enough. We Need a New Sexual Ethic. This article was a condensed version of her book that came out the following week. While I have not read her book, I read the article, and Christine is a follower of Jesus who makes her living as a journalist. For this article and her book, she went around interviewing dozens of people, mostly young adults, about their intimate lives. These were single men and women who are not following Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. And most of these young adults were saying the same thing. Something has to change. Consent is not enough. The 1960s was a crazy decade, so I hear, in which the sexual revolution began. Liberation was the goal. Anything goes for anyone at any time. Freedom is doing whatever you want, with whomever you want, wherever you want, and however you want. Fast forward over 50 years, the movement has proven itself to be a false promise. It's proven itself to be a false ideal. From this movement, the one thing that society at large agreed upon when it came to sexual encounters was consent. As long as there are two consenting adults, go for it. And with the rise in a worldview that sees our origin story apart from God, many people believe that there is nothing emotional or spiritual about sex. And it's instead nothing more than just two people exchanging bodily fluids. Christine's article pointed out how this worldview is failing. People who do not claim to be Christian or religious at all are seeing that this is not working, that something that has promised fulfillment and freedom has instead given them a sense of loneliness and bondage. Now, at least in her article, she doesn't go anything, into anything specific to Christianity, but I couldn't help and think how we, as the church, have the answer to our watching world. Jesus has the highest sexual ethic one can imagine. He is the creator of our sexual desire, yet he has a specific boundary for it. We have the answer the world is looking for. Unfortunately, I wonder if we have bought the sexual ethic that the world is promoting. I wonder if in many ways the church is no different than the people that we are trying to reach. If this is true, something must change. Let's look at what Jesus has to say about it. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, reads, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This morning we continue our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And these teachings from Jesus, as Rick pointed out last week, um, they are difficult. And uh, this morning is no different. So a few disclaimers before we look at our passage more closely. Okay, number one. This is not a sermon about three topics or about three issues in our life and the church. Meaning adultery, divorce, and remarriage. This is a sermon about people, men and women like me and you, who are living this life as best as we can, yet fail consistently. So because of that, let's enter into this conversation with grace and with humility. Number two, with that being said, you may not agree with Jesus this morning, and you may not agree with me this morning either. I hope to be faithful uh, to Scripture and to the Spirit's leading, so we leave here challenged and encouraged. And can I just say, it's okay if you don't agree with Jesus this morning, but it's not okay to stay there. And number three, lastly, there are many things to say about adultery, divorce, and remarriage, and I have 30 minutes, Okay. Um, about 25 left. So I will not be able to say everything that needs to be said, but I hope at least to summarize the necessary elements and begin a conversation and begin a journey for some of us. All right? So let's dive in. Matthew 5, verse 27. If you have your Bible opened up, look at that again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In Exodus chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments. And the seventh commandment that God gives to Moses to give to Israel says you shall not commit adultery. In Leviticus 20 verse 13, we read the punishment for breaking this commandment. It says, if a man commits adultery with his wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So what is adultery? Up until this point in scripture, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We see that adultery is any sexual relations between individuals who are not in a covenant of marriage. Any sexual relations between individuals who are not in a covenant of marriage. When this occurs, we see the punishment is death by stoning. But then Jesus comes, and he takes the definition of adultery one step further. 
He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a high standard. The word lust or lustful has somewhat become a religious term. You don't really hear it outside of of church or Christian circles too much. And so what is lust? Um, I love the Catholic definition of lust. It says a disordered desire for sexual pleasure. It's a disordered desire. Lust is the opposite of love. John Mark Comer, whose teachings have greatly helped me with this sermon, he points out that the first word used to describe in the famous 1 Corinthians 13 passage is patient. Love is patient. He then makes the point that lust is in a rush. Love is patient and lust is in a rush. Love has the best interest of another in mind. And lust, it objectifies another in order to receive satisfaction. Love is outward focused and lust is inward focused. We're not talking about you walking down the street and noticing a beautiful human being. Okay, we're not talking about the first glance. We're talking about the second take. About the looking again that is more of a gaze or more of a stare. We're talking about where your mind wanders as you stare. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And unfortunately, some of you have been the object of this stare. Martin Luther says it best, quote, we should not make the bolstering of Jesus' teaching too taut here, as if anyone who is merely tempted to look at another with lust is eternally damned. I love this. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from making a nest in my hair or from biting off my nose. Jesus equates lusting after a woman or simply just lusting after a human being as adultery. And so what's his solution? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Quick background from Jewish thoughts to help us understand these verses. Um, In the Old Testament, scholars point out that the right eye is used to talk about your sight, your right hand is used to talk about your action, and your right foot is used to talk about your path. We see two of these used here. Jesus is essentially saying, if your sight is causing you to sin, tear it out, change your sight. If your action is causing you to sin, cut off your hand. Change your action. We believe that Jesus is not being literal here, okay? He is not encouraging you to cut off body parts. And if he was, then he has forgotten a very obvious body part that could take care of the problem. No, he is using exaggeration to make a point, He is showing us how serious this sin is. 
some of us in here this morning need to take serious action in order to fight adultery in our lives. There is something about sexual sin, especially sexual sin with another that is different than any other sin. Sexual intimacy is, is so powerful that if we are flippant with it, the damage that is done is unlike most other sins. Tim Mackey, when preaching on this passage, says this, sexual desire is not bad, but when it's not in the safe environment that creates and generates life, it will consume you whole. Are you consumed this morning? Are you overwhelmed by sexual temptation? We live in a, a hyper-sexualized culture. Our young people are growing up in a world that their grandparents can't even imagine. You can't get on Instagram or Netflix or your favorite news website without seeing an image that tempts your mind to wander. That's the reality of life. Pornography is the world's most popular drug. In Japan, the population has decreased for 13 years in a row. And sociologists contributed to the rise in pornography addiction in young, man, or in young men, which causes two things. One, not to have the ability, or two, not even to have the desire to find a wife and have children. To help us understand the severity of the pornography problem in our world, a few stats for you. First, the pornography industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. It is also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography and 94% of children will see pornography by the age of 14. Thirdly, 75% of parents felt their child would, ha- would not have seen pornography online. But of those children, 53% said they had, in fact, seen pornography. Next, 64% of men who identify as Christian admit to looking at pornography at least monthly. of self-identified Christian women say they never watch pornography, which means 87% of Christian women have watched pornography. And lastly, 55% of married men and 25% of women, married women, say they watch pornography at least once a month. If you identify with any of this, Know that there is no shame or condemnation coming from me. But there is a desperate plea for you to get help. Confession is the on-ramp to freedom. You cannot fight this fight alone. Find someone and begin a journey with them. And I promise you it will be awkward at first. And it will be difficult. 
but it is 100% worth it. And so a few practical responses for this section. And I gave you space in your bulletin to write these down, so please do if you're taking notes. Number one, if you are struggling with any type of sexual sin, I strongly encourage you to begin to fast from food once a week. Let me explain why. Neuroscientists point out that our desire for food and our desire for sex are similar in nature and both, both release endorphins and dopamine when these desires are satisfied. Some say we have no stronger physical desires than to eat and to reproduce. So when you starve yourself from food for three days, for a day, or even a meal, you are doing many things. But one thing you are doing is you are training your brain to be okay when it doesn't always get what it wants. This is why on the opposite end, overeating is so dangerous when it comes to sexual sin. You're training your body and your brain that every desire that you have should be met. But when you fast for Christian purposes, you're telling God this, more than my body and stomach want food, my soul wants you. And over time, you will begin to understand that while filling your stomach is a very strong desire of yours, it is not your deepest desire. And that translates into your sexuality. Over time, your body begins to be okay with not having every craving satisfied. And God uses his spirit in partnership with your body that he created to teach you what it looks like to walk in freedom, to walk by his spirit and desire him more than you desire your sexual sin. I could go on, but if you are struggling with sexual sin, fast from food on a regular basis. Number two, tear out your right eye and cut off your right hand. The obvious application here is to be extremely careful with your technology usage. Maybe you need to cut off your right hand and take it back to 2006 and get a dumb phone and just completely eliminate that specific temptation. Maybe you need to install software on all your devices that tracks your internet usage. These don't necessarily change your heart, I understand, but you need to create friction in your life. If you want to get rid of a bad habit or a bad sin, you need to make it more difficult to do that bad habit or bad sin. Create friction to make it more difficult to act on that temptation. And do all of this with someone who you know, love, and trust. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee the youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. And lastly, number three, maybe you're married and you're in a questionable emotional relationship with someone who is not your spouse. There's nothing physical yet, but the way that you talk to each other the frequency of texting or direct messaging is not healthy and will most likely not end well. Can I just firmly say stop? Stop right now and have a conversation with that person and cut it off before it goes any further. Jesus can set us free. No matter what you've done, 
no matter who you are and what you're struggling with, Jesus raised from the dead. He can bring you out of this bondage that you're currently in. If that wasn't heavy enough, let's look at verse 31. Jesus continues. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, uh, right here, which reads, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and the verse continues, but this certificate provided a woman protection if divorce was chosen. The Holman commentary points out that, quote, it was actually Moses' effort to curtail the rampant practice of easy divorce among God's people. The legal certificate kept the husband from treating his wife capriciously, threatening her with abandonment one day and then taking her back the next And there was debate during Jesus' time around this word indecency that we read in Deuteronomy 24.1, or indecent. It's a Hebrew word that isn't used that often, and therefore it's hard for us to translate and understand the meaning of. And during Jesus' day, there were two main views coming from two different rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Hillel held to a progressive view of the interpretation of this word. He believed that indecent could be used to describe about anything for a woman. If she no longer is pleasing to the eye and is indecent in your mind, you may divorce her. If she burns the toast in the morning, you may divorce her at night. Rabbi Shammai held to a more conservative view, and he uh, interpreted the word indecent to only be sexual immorality, meaning if your wife cheats on you, you may divorce her because she has broken the marriage covenant. Which view do you think was more common during Jesus' day? The first one. Divorce was common. And I know there are probably many different beliefs about divorce represented in this room. But at this current moment in my life, I do not believe that Jesus is giving an in-depth teaching on divorce in Matthew 5. He is entering into a conversation of his day, and he is elevating a woman's status, and he is giving her dignity by not allowing a man to divorce his wife just because he is bored with her. This first century debate is highlighted in Matthew 19, if you want to go and read that later. So the natural question then is, is sexual immorality the only reason the Bible gives for divorce? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is adultery the only way a spouse can break a marriage covenant? At Northfield, we don't, we don't think so. Because in 1 Corinthians, um, Paul gives another reason for a justifiable, justifiable divorce. And it's chapter 7, verse 15. He writes, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 
Paul clearly states that if you have an unbelieving spouse who desires to separate, then divorce is an option. Some call this the abandonment exception or abandonment clause. And I think included in this abandonment exception is if you have a spouse who is abusive and has abandoned you that way and is breaking his or her marriage covenant, then divorce is an option. We're not going to go any further, but a few specific words on divorce in this passage. Number one, Jesus' teaching must be viewed through the lens of all of Scripture. We believe that he is entering a specific debate and conversation of his day. Adultery is grounds for a divorce because in a very real sense, one spouse has already been united sexually with another person and therefore the marriage covenant is broken. And Paul is also clear that abandonment is another justifiable reason for divorce. Number two, remember that this isn't the perfect holistic teaching on divorce. And so please show me grace. And if you have any questions, I would love to direct you to an elder after the service. Um, But no, seriously, I would love to talk. Um, I know many people would, and specifically the elders, if you have any um, questions. Number three, one pastor says it like this. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. There is hope. There is redemption. There is healing. And let me just say this. If you haven't been divorced, beware of being self-righteous towards those who have. Number four, and quite possibly the most important, repentance and reconciliation is God's desire for you and your marriage. Get this. Divorce is never a command in Scripture. It is always a concession. Just because there has been sexual immorality, it doesn't mean that you have to divorce. God desires for the two parties to work through it, if at all possible. And with that being said, though, if there is abuse, separate immediately. And don't just stay under the same roof because you think that you should. Separate, seek counsel, and if he or she is repentant, begin that process of reconciliation with others involved. And lastly, you may be thinking this morning, Brady, you don't understand my marriage. You don't understand what I've been through, and you don't understand what I'm going through right now. And you're right. I may not. But I do understand Jesus enough to know that he was dead, and he is now alive. His spirit is powerful. And it's powerful enough to bring the dead to life. So therefore, I believe and I trust that he can resurrect your marriage. It won't be easy. It will require a lot of work from two people. But it is possible. Once again, I realize the insufficiency of that. But let's move on to remarriage. What I'm about to say I hold loosely because this is a, once again, nuanced conversation. But whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
This is a tough phrase to understand, I'll be honest. Um, Scholars seem to point out that Jesus may be, okay, he may be describing not any divorced woman, but quite possibly the wrongfully divorced woman here. The woman who has been found indecent because she doesn't look like she used to on her wedding day, for example. If this is the case, then by marrying this previously divorced woman, the man would be committing adultery because she should still be married. Her previous marriage covenant was never broken. And so if this interpretation is correct, then that means there are certain examples when remarriage is possible. And as I said earlier, Jesus is looking after the least of these in his society. And when it came to marriage and divorce, it was the women who were being taken advantage of and moved on from because of an interpretation in Deuteronomy that was not faithful to the text. And can I just say that our world is not that much different today. Generally speaking, women are still the ones being taken advantage of. So as a 30-year-old who doesn't have much experience that many of you do, what, what do I really know about divorce and remarriage? It's a fair thought. That's a fair critique if you're thinking it. But after reading and after praying a lot for this message, two simple pieces of advice. If you are divorced, if you have biblical grounds for remarriage and are seeking remarriage, okay? Number one, go slow. Go slow. Do not rush into it. I know that loneliness can be miserable, but please take your time to deal with your previous marriage or else you will carry that into your next. And number two, consult those around you. Seek counsel, including primarily your church family, your life group, and especially the elders. Don't make a decision like this all alone. Talk to others and seek wisdom and counsel from them. So where do we go from here? That was a lot. I don't know about for you, but for me it was heavy. Um, For some, that may have been slightly triggering. And I think the simple question is this. Where do we need to repent? Where do we need to take a step back and confess our sin? Do you need to be that awkward guy or girl and get a dumb phone and embrace it? Do you need to stop that slightly inappropriate relationship with that coworker before it becomes a full-blown affair? Or maybe just simply... You need to look at your spouse in the eyes tonight and say, we need help. We can't do this alone. And then seek out counseling. For those who are following Jesus, let me say this clearly. There there is no shame and there is no guilt. Jesus left that in the grave and he walked out alive and well and he offers to you that same freedom and so take it. Take all that he has to offer and follow him with your entire 
life. And I'll end with this quote, something has to change. Something has to change. Consent is not enough. This is the cry of many in our culture. And as Don talked about, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And so let's not cave into the world's standards on these topics. And instead, let's be the brightest and saltiest church around. Let's be a church that honors men and women with our eyes and with our actions. Let's be a church that fights for our marriages and doesn't lose hope. Let's be a church that comes around those who are divorced and loves them radically and sacrificially. Let's be a church who loves God with our entire being and loves our neighbor as ourself. Let's be the church that Jesus died for and is calling us to be. Let's pray. Father, because of who you are, you know where this needs to land and apply to each one of us in this room. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would make that happen. Lord, I pray that many of us would come to you just empty and broken in a very healthy way, realizing that in our life something needs to change. So, God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.